the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on this free-for-all Friday. It's easy to do. You pick up the phone. You dial the number 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And, uh, of course... Love to take your call. This is the program where we talk about God, the historical Jesus. We talk about the Bible. Uh, we talk about world uh, event, wor- world religions, world views, world events. We talk about the past and the future. And one of the things that uh, is so interesting to me, um, obviously in the news in the last couple of days, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, first uh, woman. Supreme Court Justice dies today. Uh, yesterday, it was announced Henry Kissinger had died. Um, and you'll remember, it wasn't too long ago, Producer Jim, that uh, Derek Chauvin was in the news. This is the the police officer who was uh, convicted of, if you will, killing George Floyd. Did did you hear that he had been stabbed in prison? But what hasn't been widely reported in the in the mainstream media is who stabbed him? Who stabbed Derek Chauvin? It was a man named John Turisk, who's fifty two years old. He worked as an FBI informant. And apparently this former FBI informant stabbed Derek Chauvin not once, not twice, not even 10 times. Guess how many times he was stabbed? 22 times with a knife that was created by that inmate. And this is, and if that's not interesting enough, he was in prison, John Terskak, the guy who stabbed Derek Chauvin, he was in prison after being found guilty of racketeering and and conspiring to kill a gang rival. And then before that, he worked as an FBI informant against the Mexican Mafia organization. And when he was sentenced in 2001, Terskak admitted that he carried out crimes while working undercover as an informant for the FBI. And allegedly he told the the Los Angeles Times, I'm not making this up. He said, quote, I didn't commit those crimes for kicks. I did them because I had to if I wanted to stay alive. I told that to the FBI agents, and they just said, do what you have to do. Isn't that interesting? 
303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And, of course, one of the things that's clearly in the news as well is uh, the debate, the so-called debate that took place between um, Governor Gavin Newsom and uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. And, again, what's interesting about that debate is how odd it it is. In other words, uh, Ron DeSantis is running for president. Um, Gavin Newsom is not running for president. And so the the debate begins by saying (laughs) neither one of us will be the nominee of our party. But it was allegedly billed as a kind of the great red state versus the blue state debate. And um, it was this opportunity to contrast both governors to give them a platform about how they run their states. And what's interesting in part is both governors came into office in 2018. Both were reelected in 2022. In between that, obviously, we're after 2019 and the beginning of 2020 was the COVID catastrophe. Now, both were elected in 2018, both reelected by decisive margins in their respective states. And uh, both were in charge of leading their states through the COVID crisis. And much of their mutual resentment took place in the handling of the COVID crisis with one um, focusing on control, that's California, and one focusing on freedom, that's Florida. And that was the great divide. And during this debate, it wasn't just about the rivalry between their states. You know, they were talking about how many people have left California to go live in Florida. And it was brought out that Gavin Newsom's uh, uh, father and mother-in-law, his wife's parents, moved to Florida to escape Newsom's draconian uh, policies. And so it's also interesting about their size and significance, California and Florida. California is the first most populated state in the union. Florida is the the third most populous state in the union. And during the so-called debate, there was this constant name-calling and and fact-checking the statements that were made. Jim Dennison, or actually it's Ryan Dennison at the the Dennison Forum today at ChristianHeadlines.com. Ryan Dennison writes, quote, My most enduring takeaway from the debate had less to do with their approach to any particular subject than with the general feel of the event. He writes, and as we'll discuss shortly, there's an important lesson in there for us today. 
regardless of where you're falling on the political spectrum. He writes, while President Biden is technically not running unopposed, his team has acted as though it is. It's unlikely he's going to appear on a debate stage until next September. And as such, the only presidential debates that have taken place so far have been on the Republican side. Moreover, none of those have included former President Trump, who still has a large lead in the polls. He writes, consequently, while there have been some contentious moments, for the most part, the candidates have been largely debating the best method to accomplish the same goals, with a few exceptions. Their general approach to governance and their beliefs on the more significant issues are fairly aligned. But but that wasn't the case in the DeSantis and Newsom exchange. What was very, very different is their vision for leading a country. There was little or no agreement on any major policy throughout the evening. And in contrast, the differences between the candidates within either party, while not insignificant, relatively minor by comparison. And that's the lesson. That's part of the lesson. Division versus unity, control versus freedom. 303-873-1935, that's the number. If you want to join me on the program, I'll be right back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a kind of a free-for-all Friday. I'm happy to take your calls at 303-873-1935 on this sort of free-for-all Friday. If you'd like to join me, 303-873-1935. And uh, happy to take your call. We're talking, we've talked a lot about a lot of different things, including joy and prophecy. But again, if you'd like to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. And there, we have a, a new article that's been posted at uh, Got Questions, Your Questions, Biblical Answers that I'd like to share with you in this segment because of the accusation um, that Christians and Christianity is unreasonable or that somehow uh, Christians um, don't have a high view of reason. So we have an article. It's posted at Got Questions. It's included uh, at gotquestions.org. And if you go to the section, you can, by the way, you can, you can go to gotquestions.org. You can um, get on the mailing list and get questions. It's so much fun. But this particular question, I think, is really, really important. And again, but I do want to give out the phone number and give you a chance to call at 303-873-1935. And, of course, the article's entitled, What is a Christian View of Reason? And the article says, quote, Often both Christians and skeptics assume 
that Christianity has little to do with reason and relies solely on faith, often termed blind faith or faith without evidence. They agree with Benjamin Franklin, who said, quote, the way to see by faith is to shut the eye of reason, unquote. That was in from Poor Richard's Almanac. Christians with a negative view of reason may see reason as useful in other aspects of life, but introducing the element of doubt in Christianity. Atheists and other irreligious individuals often portray believers as wishful thinkers and self-deluded chumps to whom reason is dispensable. However, Scripture contradicts the notion that Christianity shuns reason. I'm going to stop in the article and just remind you that what the article is basically saying is not only does Christianity not shun reason, it doesn't trivialize reason or denigrate reason. And the article goes on and says, reasoning involves evaluating facts, making judgments, justifying choices with evidence, and attempting to persuade with solid arguments. So again, pause in the article. Imagine living in a world where facts, judgment, choice, evidence, persuasion matter. The article goes on and says, the Christian worldview provides a robust foundation for reasoning, especially considering the immaterial, immutable, and transcendent natures of the laws of logic that underpin all forms of thinking. These laws are beyond human convention. They are discovered rather than invented. In a world without God, it would be difficult to say how these laws of logic came to be, or we might even say came into existence or appeared. However, the Christian perspective has the answer. The laws of logic, quote, are simply a reflection of the thoughts and logical character of God. And as such, they reveal his logical, perfect nature, unquote. So what they're doing is they're, they're quoting um, J. Warner Wallace, who's been on this program, in a book called Is God Real? Are the Laws of Logic Simply Human Conventions? And... Uh, you can find the citation at coldcasechristianity.com. And, of course, there's a plethora of passages that we could appeal to, like 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
So, furthermore, Christian uh, scripture teams with examples of individuals, including God, making sound judgments, reasoning with others. Abraham facing Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment reasons with the Lord to spare the towns if some righteous people lived within. That discussion takes place in Genesis chapter 18. Moses reasons with God in Exodus chapter 32, while God himself urges the Israelites to reason with him in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, Come now, let us reason together, you and I. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I want to pause in the article and just bring out something. When it says Moses reasoned with God in Exodus 32, and uh, Abraham reasons with God in Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment, this is not to assume or to suggest that God is unreasonable or acts in an irrational way. So if you're coming to the conclusion that anyone who reasons with God is because God has gone off the reservation or is about to do something crazy, they misunderstand the text. So back to the article. Jesus engaged in logical discourse during his time on earth, and his teachings amazed listeners in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, where it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. In other words, a person who <laughs> seems to know what he's talking about. Paul, so, so again, pause in the article. Does this mean that Jesus never appeals to authority? That can't be right because over and over again in the scripture, Jesus appeals to authority. He over and over again will say in a number of different places, what does the scripture say? What's your reading of it? Or Paul in Romans where he says Abraham believed God and it, it, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What does the scripture say? So, again, Paul, arguably the first Christian apologist, spends much time and effort in reasoning with people in Acts chapter 17, um, verses 2 and th through 4, and then again in Acts chapter 19. So, as Christians... We're given an invitation to give a good reason for the hope within us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope within you. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number's 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Is it Jesse? Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Gino. This is Jesse. Um, I listen to your show a bunch, 
because I'm interested in a lot of the things you talk about. And over the past few weeks, you've been speaking about just war, the concept of just war. And um, obviously, with the stuff going on in the world now, but really all the time, it's kind of a pertinent subject. Right. My my question is, uh, well, twofold. So the first part has to do with um, what is the biblical justification for just war? Because uh, I know the Bible fairly well, and I, I have a hard time finding any justification um, for war now, maybe more so in the New Testament. But, and, then more, and then the second part is, I understand Jesus as a pacifist through and through, and so it's hard for me to understand how somebody can call themselves a follower of Christ but then be in favor of war, uh, really for any reason. And I don't, I don't really think Jesus, based on my understanding of Jesus and, and the red letters in the four Gospels, uh, that, he, that he would really say, you know, in this case, go for it. Let's, let's blow those people up. Let's get them or whatever, you know. So if you could uh, speak to both those, that'd be, that'd sure. be great. Well, let's start with some, making sure that we don't make category mistakes, okay? The, the, and by category mistakes, here's, here's what I mean. You are absolutely right at least about one thing. And that is war is wicked and perverse. It is, it's disgusting. It is not the way to solve problems and resolve conflicts. It is the most wicked way to try to resolve problems and conflicts. So it's really important that you remember that war is something that is waged by nation states or sub-states, if you will. So a just war, and Augustine talks about this, that a just war is declared by a legitimate government. So that, that creates problems in and of itself because what constitutes a legitimate government. But let's go back to your initial offering, which is what what can we do in the Bible? When we're, when we're talking about these concepts and these categories from a biblical standpoint, where in the world do we get affirmation or support? And the way that I would talk right. about that is you have to begin with the scriptural principle, which I'm sure that you believe in, and that is that human beings have intrinsic value. They are valuable because they're made in the image of God. They are image bearers. They're not cattle, fodder. Um, they're, They're not meat factories that you just blow up in a whim. And you may or, right. or, or may not know this, but during the Crusades, <laughs> I just found this out because I've been doing a deep dive into the Crusades. But when a Crusader killed a Muslim or a pagan, they had to do 40 days penance because they had killed an image bearer who could have heard the gospel and received hope. But so 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 to your to your point, Genesis says human beings are valuable but romans 3:10 says sinful they're valuable and sinful so god institutes human government specifically to maintain order and justice in romans chapter 13 you'll remember government is established by god in genesis chapter 9 and government exists in part to avoid chaos create order, uh, maintain order and justice. So human beings in general and Christians in particular 
are more are, are to your point and rightfully so they're morally obligated to pursue a just world okay a just sure. world um so that obligation doesn't however imply you never use violence but it does imply that you don't use violence to advance faith. In other words, we as Christians don't believe in a holy war. So a holy war is different from a just war. And so um, God's prohibition on murder, it's killing that applies to murder, Exodus chapter twenty thirteen. In other words, right. thou shalt not kill. But 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 there is no prohibition against capital punishment. Genesis chapter nine verse six says, "If you shed a man's blood, by by man your blood will be shed." In other words, um, there is a just taking of life, and there is an unjust taking of life. So so back to 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 your your point, and that is, um. When we're talking about justified warfare in Psalm eighteen thirty four, that David says he trains my hands for war, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. So we have this situation corporately. Um, there is legitimate self-defense in Luke chapter 22, verse 36. At the same time, cruelty, revenge, hatred are condemned by the Bible. And so the, the most commonly understood version of the just war is grounded in those kinds of biblical ideas that are now going to be sort of fleshed out by Augustine in the, in the, in the fourth century or the fifth century, actually. So a just war has to be by a legitimate government. A just war has to be an act of last resort. So what's interesting now, about are those, use, are those, sorry to interject, but are those no, things, no. cause I heard you, saying those a couple of weeks ago, you know, by a legitimate government and by uh, act of last resort or whatever. So is it, but that's not in the Bible. That's, that sounds like something else you're quoting. Well, again, here, here's what I'm quoting from the Bible. Do you think governments exist lawfully or unlawfully? Oh, uh, that's a mixed bag. No, it's, uh, it's actually not. So I'm going to ask you kind of a hard question. Does Israel have a right to exist as a nation state? I don't really feel qualified to say one way or the other. Um, I, well, okay, let's, a lot let's of, go something even more simple. Let's go even more simple. Do you think the United States of America has the right to exist as a nation state? Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, here we are, right? And here Israel is. And so and see, if you can't answer that question, then we can't, I, I mean, I'm happy to have a conversation with you, but, but what, but it's predicated on the fact that, that to, to your point in the Bible, in Romans chapter 13, verses one through five, when, when Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. Apparently, you don't believe that. So I'm going to ask you a simple question. In Romans 13, sure. verses 1, where it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, what do you think that means? Uh, well, I, mean, I think it means pretty much on the surface what it's saying. How, however, I would respond that, you know, and, you know, you have to be crazy to 
pretend that every government is is just and right in all of their activity and actions and prosecutions. I mean, we just in my lifetime, you know, I'm I'm middle aged. Uh, okay, I've got pa- more yeah, examples pa- I can point to. All right, pause, pause, and think about it. Do you know who wrote the <clears throat> Book of Romans? Uh, was it Paul? Yeah. Do you yeah. know which government was in control when Paul wrote that book? I'm guessing the the Romans. Right. Do you know who was the emperor in Rome when he wrote that book? Mm, this was this had to be uh, off the top of my head. No. Do, do okay, you know? I know off the top of my head. It's fifty. It's fifty six A.D. and Nero is the emperor. Do you Nero. think? Yeah. Do you think Nero was? I'm going to just be blunt. A monster and a jerk. <laughs> Well, based on the the great series I watched recently about him and a few other emperors, uh, I think he probably was a bit of a monster and a jerk if they were anywhere close. And that's the person that Paul is talking about in Romans 13 when he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. It's hard. That's crazy. It is crazy. (laughs) It's hard and crazy. But thank you for your call. Yeah, I had a second. I had the second part about Jesus and pacifism. All right, you hold on, and we'll we'll talk about that if you don't mind holding. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be right back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. I'm talking with Jesse, and you had another question about Jesus and um, his view of, I guess, conflict or war. Um, So I I don't want to put words in your mouth. So why don't you tell me what your question is or or how you want to frame this conversation? Because I don't want to answer a question you don't really want the answer to. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that. Um, So, so, you know, I've, I've studied Jesus a fair amount in the Bible as well. And from what I understand of Jesus, and, you know, I'm, I'm referring to the red letter parts in the four Gospels, things he actually said, or at least we think he actually said, I understand Jesus to be a pacifist through and through. And um, so, you know, if Christians are are followers of Christ, uh, and if we're supposed to, you know, mimic Christ as Christians, you know, how how can a Christian be in favor of war um, if they are attempting to be a follower of Christ? And that's a, that's a great question. And, and, but you're, the way you frame the question causes me a little bit of concern. Okay. And let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Sure. When you say the red letter, because what that implies is that the other letters may or may not matter. So let's start with the red letter. Okay, and then let's go. Well, to, of course, I mean the the things that we we think he actually said. Right. Well, that that goes to a different, a whole nother, and I don't want to get sidetracked by that. But it, it's important okay. for for you to understand my position. My position is that it isn't just the red letters that are inspired or authoritative or important, but that the whole revelation of God given in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is important. So let's start with. Uh, the, the the definition of a pacifist, okay, so that sure. we under, so the, so that we understand our terms. If by pacifist you mean someone who's opposed to violence, especially war, and I've already mm-hmm. told you my position that war is wicked and the worst way to solve problems, yeah. okay. Right. And so a pacifist will refuse to bear arms for reasons of conscience 
or, or religious conviction. Okay, that's my understanding of a pacifist. Now, I think you might agree with me, even though it's not a red letter. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, um, it talks about a, a prophecy about a child who's going to be born, a son who's given. The government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and most notably, the Prince of Peace. So I I don't think you would take umbrage that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, a man of peace. Would you disagree with that? No, I I would agree that he is that. And and would you also agree with his message in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 44, where he is talking about, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist someone who's evil. But anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone sues you uh, for your tunic, give him your cloak. In other words, would you say it's safe to say, or am I misrepresenting what it says to, to at least make the claim that Jesus is remarkably nonviolent? Yes, I would agree. Okay. Now, what do you do with passages of Scripture like Psalm 144.1, where David says, Blessed is the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Or in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, which represents Jesus as coming out of his mouth, a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Um, How do you deal with the passages in Revelation that talk about him ruling with an iron scepter? He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Um, How do you deal with the other passages that talk about the necessity of violently confronting this antichrist figure at the end of the age? Well, I think, uh, you, you know, I think there's a lot more metaphor happening in, in books like Revelation. You know, this was a, a vision that, that John had, if I remember right, while he was isolated, uh, marooned right. on an island. Yeah, and let's just for purposes of um, I think there's of a lot of mystery, a lot of mystery around Revelation. Well, well let's, I don't... Just, let's say that there is mystery and metaphor. Yeah. What do you Absolutely. think, what do you think it means when it says his robes dipped in blood? <laughs> that he had a really good Halloween costume. Um, yeah, well, see, you know, it's, it's see, mysterious, and, and, and I, that's well, possible that see, there might be a metaphor at play there, but, but, but is I don't it a know. Metaf- but, but is it a, a metaphor of violence and a violent undoing of something that's really, really wrong? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, oftentimes, you know, well, metaphors can, well, can suggest well, viol- so, use violence to okay. paint a picture of so, something so, else. So, so in your view, I'm going to just concede in every possible way, your view, mm-hmm. what do you think the metaphor means? In Revelation? Yeah. I, I don't know, I, and I'm comfortable with, okay. with okay. saying so, there's a looming no, question no, mark. No, I don't no, know. No, no, no. My my response might shock you and surprise you. I don't know a lot of things either. <laughs> and, yeah. and you maybe you've heard me say that on the program. Hey, you know what? I don't know everything about everything. But I yeah. do know this, that the text can never mean what it never meant. It can sure. never mean what it never meant. So let's talk about something that's less mysterious and, and metaphorical. 
and talk about Jesus' interaction with the Roman centurion. And he okay. he receives the soldier's praise. He heals his servant. He com- commends him to the faith. And he doesn't tell the soldier to quit the army. Okay. Um, John the Baptist, when he's encountering soldiers, the, the soldiers ask him, well, what, what should we do in Luke chapter 3, verse 14? And that would have been the perfect opportunity for John to say, lay down your arms. But he didn't. Yeah. He, sa- he says, here's what I want you to do. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Why did Jesus have words of praise for people in the army? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being in the army and, and carrying around a gun or a sword or, or whatever. But I think the wrongness comes when you're shooting a bullet into somebody's skin or stabbing through their neck with your sword. And if they, you know, if Jesus caught them in the act of that, I'm pretty sure he would be like, dude, what are you doing? Stop it. Well, <laughs> you know, you know Jesus' Jesus's disciples owned weapons. So sure. how do you account for that? Well, I, again, I think there's, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with owning a weapon. I think the wrongness comes in when it's used to injure or kill another, another person. And I think you that's mean, what even, Jesus you mean in against. self, so it, are you talking about when it's used to protect yourself? I mean, how can you, how I don't can you know. Use, how, how can well, you he, use he a weapon? And, okay. How can you use a sword and not cut somebody? How can you use a gun and not shoot somebody if they're, if they're, if they're convinced that they're going to kill you? Well, owning a gun and, and shooting someone and killing them are two different things. But, no, no, I, um, I own a weapon, and I've never shot anybody in my life, and I don't plan right, to. Right, right, and, the, and so there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with you owning that weapon, you know. So how do you account for Ecclesiastes where it says there's a time for everything, a season for every activity, a time to kill, a time to tear down, a time for war, This was for peace? This was old. This was Old Testament before Jesus came, and if you know, if I understand the Bible correctly, he is supposed to have brought an entirely new situation into play. So, so you let's know, just pa- let's Old pause Testament and, and ta- let's pause and take you at your word. So what you're saying is, even though in Ecclesiastes it says there's a time for war and a time for peace, are yeah. you saying that's no longer true? Uh, I'm saying that Jesus. Uh, kind of revoked those principles by what he came and did. Well, I think you've got a tough road ahead of you. <laughs> Look, I'll call you back if, again sometime. No, I Thank hope you, this Gino. has been a pleasant conversation anyway. No, it has, but it's a longer one than this, so I'll call yeah, you back. I gotta sometime. go. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.